Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. These days, we tend to toggle back and forth between the immediate news and the longer horizon, connecting the two to determine how a legal motion or a jobs report might influence the enormous question of whether Donald Trump will be re-elected president in 2024, with all the disastrous consequences that might portend. Concerns about the prospect of a second Trump presidency are palpably mounting as Trump's glide path to the Republican nomination looks increasingly smooth. As political critic Robert Kagan recently wrote, there is a clear path to dictatorship in the United States and it is getting shorter every day. In the Congress, Kevin McCarthy, ousted from his speaker's position in a brutal battle with the hard right, has had enough and he is leaving the body after close to 16 years. His tenure as speaker was marked by a steadfast allegiance to Donald Trump, a defining feature that translated to a lack of any legislative action to aid the American people. And new speaker Mike Johnson, still finding his way and figuring out how to deal with the MAGA gang that brought McCarthy down, came out full Trump in saying the GOP will blur January 6th video footage to protect the rioters from prosecution. Last week, we also received a vivid snapshot of the state of our higher education system and its susceptibility to and failure to repel extreme anti-Semitic sentiment that has flared up in the wake of the 10-7 Hamas attacks. Three college presidents testified before the House Education and Workforce Committee and disastrously evaded answers to what seemed to most Americans like morally straightforward questions. By week's end, one president had resigned and the posts of the other two were imperiled. To wrestle with these issues in today's headlines, all of which resound in the broader existential struggle over the nation's identity, we welcome three trenchant and insightful commentators. And they are... David French, an opinion columnist with the New York Times, a former JAG officer deployed to Iraq in 2007. He earned a Bronze Star with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment since transitioning from full-time law practice to join National Review in 2015. David has been a prominent voice in American politics, most notably in his book, Addressing Growing Polarization, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David French, thanks for your service and thanks for returning to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me back. Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes the weekly column on life in Washington. Susan previously served as editor of several Washington-based publications, including Politico, Foreign Policy, and the Outlook and National News sections for the Washington Post. She's written several books, including The Divider with Peter Baker, which we covered in a Talking Books episode. Susan, nice to see you again. Thanks for joining. Ah, great to be with you. Thanks for that. Uh, trenchant. I don't know. We have to live up to that now. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah Goldberg a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he holds the Asnes Chair in Applied Liberty, and also, of course, the editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. 
He hosts the extremely lively and intelligent podcast, The Remnant, <laughs> with Jonah Goldberg. And he's my colleague of sorts, though we don't ever cross paths because nobody ever goes there, as a weekly columnist for the LA Times. Jonah, very good to see you. Thanks for returning. Great to be here. Okay, so I want to start, as I've suggested, in a broader thematic place. The handicapping of Trump's chances for re-election feels like a sort of secondary current in many stories, especially now with his proclamations of autocratic rule premised on loyalty to him and vengeance against his enemies. But at least the inside Washington crowd, I think we all number them, have been fixated, I think kind of shaken up this week by an article in the Washington Post by noted political scholar Bob Kagan entitled, A Trump Dictatorship is Increasingly Inevitable, We Should Stop Pretending. Okay, so that's where I propose we start, away from the daily diet of law and politics to a broader range look of where we are. 40 days before the Iowa caucuses, 11 months out from the 2024 presidential election. Susan, I wonder if we can start with you, because you wrote in response to this and other things that the Capitol has a bad case of year-end panic. Is Kagan overreacting? Well, what I also wrote is that this panic is, when it comes to the prospects for a second Trump term, entirely justified. And I think the piece is important reading. It's hard reading. But I think back to the spring of 2016, an article I would I would urge you and, and all your listeners to go back and reread. And that's a piece that Bob Kagan wrote in the Washington Post. It was the first use that I am aware of, of the F word with regards to Donald Trump, the F word being fascist in this case, in the middle of the 2016 campaign. It was at a point in time where it was clear that Trump was going to win the nomination, although it was not over over at that point in time. And much of what Kagan wrote then was prescient and it was accurate. And at the time, it was shocking to people. And it seems that this article in some ways is having a similar resonance. Now, I can pull back and I can say, well, hey, wait a minute, I wrote a whole book about Donald Trump and his first term in office, the conclusion of which was, if you want to know how disruptive and radical a second term will be, look at the record of the first term and all the things that he talked about doing but was constrained in some ways from being able to carry out or execute. So there's a certain frustration, right, in saying these are not really new observations, even though they appear to be resonating for people. For whatever complicated series of reasons, it's clear that there were many people who did not take seriously enough how real the prospect of Trump not only winning the Republican nomination in 2024 was, but the kind of agenda that he would be bringing to a second term. So for whatever reason, that is now sinking in on people. What I think is different about Bob's piece, and I, I can't wait to hear what everyone else has to say about this, is that he makes the effort to not only give us the undifferentiated mass of, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump could be president again, but to try to unpack with more specificity what that looks like, what are some of the ways in which the institutions and guardrails would actually collapse under the kind of assault that we can reasonably anticipate they would face. You know, it is something as an op-ed writer, you feel like 
you you put them out there, but every few years, you know, something that really sort of strikes a nerve, and it is. It, I mean, the, the the article itself is so it grabs you by the throat, uh, just really well done, and doesn't doesn't let you go. I have a bunch of conflicted feelings about the piece, about this whole argument, and so I want to put on the pundit hat for just two seconds before we get into the meta stuff, the deeper stuff. Even if it is true, right, that there is a non-trivial chance that he would become a dictator, right? And again, I, I phrase it that way for a reason. It doesn't have to be a 100% chance. If there's a 10% chance, that's something you should take seriously, right? You know, So Kagan could be 90% wrong, and it's still worth noodling. That said, it is not at all clear to me that this conversation isn't helpful to Trump. In much the same way, Trump was losing in polls to DeSantis prior to the indictments. The indictments rallied the support of a lot of people who otherwise thought they didn't like him anymore or thought his time had passed. Politics is not, strictly speaking, rational. If you look at a lot of the reporting about like the focus groups or the surveys that like the DeSantis campaign has done, they will get diehard Republican voters to say, yes, the COVID lockdowns were very bad under Fauci. And like 70% of them will say they were very bad. And then they'll change the language to the lockdowns under Trump were very bad. And 70% will disagree. <laughs> so to talk about this in a sort of faculty lounge kind of rational spirit misses the irrationality of politics to a certain degree. And when you hear people go straight to the dictator talk, it creates an antibody reaction psychologically among a lot of Republicans. And in part, because I will say, as someone who holds a lot of receipts on this, talk about Republicans being fascists and would-be dictators is a very old tradition in this country. I mean, Daniel Shore did it to Barry Goldwater. Lots of people called Ronald Reagan a fascist. And while liberals that I've talked to have no memory of this, there are a lot of Republicans or a lot of conservatives who have a deep memory of this and will remind other Republicans by saying that's what they always say about Republicans. And it also just causes people to sort of rally around them. So I'm a little torn about signal boosting the conversation if it's actually going to have the unintended consequence of actually helping Trump rather than hurting Trump. I mean, there has been, I think, in the country, a kind of confusion between very conservative and fascist. But Trump precisely brings at home the elements that, that he's not just prone to, but touting really begin to be the kind of defining points of fascism. Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to get into a, you know, I wrote a book about fascism. I don't want to get deep in the weeds about this, but fascism was not, strictly speaking, a conservative phenomenon. Hitler did not want to restore the monarchy. He did not consider, he said, I'm no patriot, I'm a nationalist. Mussolini had a cult of personality. It was all about big government things that he wanted to do. It was all about the cult of personality aspect of it. That and the toxic masculinity nonsense are the most re reminiscent things about fascism. The problem is, is that there are people who want to say fascism is this coherent ideology, and it, it wasn't in the 1930s and 40s, and it, it's not today. It's, it's wrapped up in these other sort of uh, emotional things. And Trump has cultivated this emotional bond with a big chunk of the Republican Party. And I think one of the most interesting things to point out to people is that when you don't have Trump on the, the debate stage, with the exception of the pernicious Vivek Ramaswamy, these debates have been remarkably Reaganite. You know, the differences between these candidates on actual policy issues is pretty small. And if any of these other candidates 
said half the things that Trump said, they would be pelted from the state, you know, from Republican politics. There was just this huge psychological carve out for Donald Trump that makes him very difficult to deal with, very difficult to argue about, because he's got no serious commitment to any issues with the exception maybe of immigration, which is a real blood and soil kind of commitment, not a policy commitment, that it, it makes the whole conversation really difficult to have. And I don't know, I spent seven years, my life was thrown on its head, as was David's, by the rise of Donald Trump. I've tried very hard to argue against Trumpism and populism and nationalism for seven years now, longer about populism. It is a multi-headed, weird thing to fight, and when you punch it, it's like jello. And so rallying the Atlantic writers and the fan service that's implied in some of that, as, as serious as I think many of those pieces are, I don't think it's persuading anybody right now that isn't already persuaded, and it might be driving some people away from the right conclusions that they should be drawing. So I will say, I think Jonah is right, and that's one reason why Kagan is right. <laughs> so That's fair. Yeah. Jonah's absolutely right that every negative development, every even credible complaint against Trump seems to build and solidify the support for Trump within the GOP. Forget Kagan for a minute. Kagan is a drop in the ocean compared to 91 indictments, okay? And four different criminal trials coming. The Kagan's op-ed isn't even, isn't even a rounding error of impact in the national conversation, as much impact as it had. I'm not denigrating the op-ed. It obviously had a lot of impact. But compared to four criminal trials, with three of the four, I think, widespread bipartisan consensus among, amongst sensible lawyers that these are very serious, dangerous cases for Trump. And he's stronger, okay? And Jonah's also right that none of these rules apply to any other candidate. It's, it's almost funny watching normal political coverage harm DeSantis and Haley. <laughs> and really in the ways that we were used to pre-Trump, pre-2016, you know, DeSantis had a gaffe. Is he wearing lifts? You know, Haley, what's this online censorship that Haley wants? To, so all of these things are normal political conversations that apply to every other politician in the GOP. And then you have the singular figure of Donald Trump. Now, he's not singular in the sense that he arises out of nowhere and out of nothing. He arose out of a political culture that was already drifting into madness, but he is still a singular figure. And I, Harry, just to be honest, look back, the arc of the last eight years, and I can remember writing in 2016, and this is after I had been never Trump, never Trump, never Trump. I'm totally opposed to him. We'll never vote for him. But I still think people were a little too alarmist about him. And then January 6th happens. The big lie happens. All of the things we saw before that. And i kind of embarrassed, <laughs> to be honest, by that uh, assessment in 2016. I, I couldn't wrap my mind around what the GOP would ultimately become and so where I am right now is I read the Kagan piece and I viewed it as unlikely that he would be a dictator, but not impossible. And as I said on a different podcast yesterday, I really dislike most important election of our lifetime rhetoric. That's been part of the problem. And I don't even know if 2024 will be the most important election of my lifetime. Ask me towards the end, and hopefully this is not it. But this is the first election of my lifetime that I'm not 100% certain that the country will survive. Can I just try to square the circle on, I'm very interested in, in Jonah and David's points. And I think it's fascinating to me because 
they're reacting in a way to this issue that's perplexed us, which is how do you break the Trump fever, the Republican Party? And I think that's where you get a different perspective. If the question is sort of like Trump and the GOP versus the bigger picture threat to American democracy, Kagan, one of his arguments here is essentially that the Republican Party is dead. And I feel like part of the circularity and part of the qualms that people have about Kagan's argument is not that he's wrong, but oh no, aren't we just going to drive up Trump's support among Republicans? And that's the same objection that I hear to the court cases. Not that Donald Trump is not guilty of being essentially the first American president in our history to you know, seek to overturn a legitimate election, to break that social compact in the United States that win or lose, you know, you leave when you lose and having the peaceful transfer of power. And I often hear Republicans express this concern, the sort of anti-Trump Republicans. Well, we're just going to fuel Trumpism by having these court cases or by talking about dictatorship or Biden shouldn't campaign on, you know, against the MAGA Republicans because that really upsets them. Oh, my, we've been called dictators before. That's terrible. And I get the practical arguments, except what I'm interested in now heading into 2024, and, and I agree with David's point absolutely that, you know, the stakes here are pretty existential. The thing is that these arguments aren't going to work. You know, the enabling has gotten to the point we talk about, oh, these other Republicans on the debate stage, it's pretty normal, it's regular politics. I would sort of say, yes, but the the but being the biggest possible thing, which is that all those people, except for Chris Christie, raised their hands and said they're willing to vote for Donald Trump. The Republicans who passed for the establishment enabled, like they're not the Republicans, I would say, of the pre-Trump party because they have gone along with someone who doesn't fundamentally agree with the Constitution, who has taken over the Republican Party, and they have, for the variety of complicated reasons, you know, that they might have personally gone along with it. And I have to say, like, to me, that seems like the death of the Republican Party in the very sweeping terms that Kagan is is talking about it. Can I just round out Susan's question and, just, and then serve it up to both David and Jonah. So one thing Kagan writes is when New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu says, I just want Republicans to win. That's all I care about. He may as well just get it over with and endorse Trump. So this is implicit in Susan's question, but why aren't Republican elites seizing this very moment now to try to be serious about the fast drive to the cliff that the party and the country might be in? I mean, there are notable exceptions to what I'm about to say, but GOP elected officials writ large are among the most spineless human beings I've ever seen as a collective group in my entire life. I mean, it's a joke. It is pathetic. If you went to these folks in 2014, before Trump came down the escalator and said, you know what you're going to do in about six years? You're going to be carrying water for the dumbest conspiracy theory in American history, <laughs> which will then ultimately lead to a gang of screaming Christian nationalists to storm the Capitol, and you're still going to stick with the conspiracy theory, they would tell me that I am being disrespectful and don't know their great heart and their great character right. and their love for this country. It is pathetic, Harry. Words cannot 
adequately convey my contempt for this cowardice, okay? And by the way, they agree with your factual account today <laughs> behind closed doors, right? Right, of course. And so so then Jonah can speak for himself. But my interpretation is Jonah's not saying, and therefore don't say true things about Trump. And he's not saying, and therefore don't prosecute Trump. Like my own point of view is prosecute Trump even if a million armed MAGA people come charging the courthouse. Let justice be done though the heavens fall. No, the argument is one of the reasons why Trump is such a singularly dangerous figure is the very phenomenon Jonah was accurately describing, which is all the things that should end a political career forever and ever, amen, are perpetuating his career. So that means he's a, a figure that we've not seen in recent American history I think Jonah is offering a necessary sort of caution, which says we can op-ed till our heart's content and we might still have the sort of democratic apocalypse. And both Jonah and I are well positioned to make that case because we were at National Review in 2016 when we did the big against Trump issue. It was full bore, all cannons blazing. We invited tons of guests from the larger conservative movement, and you'll read down that list and you will see MAGA person after Trumper after MAGA person, how decisively they flipped. And that is a symptom of the very problem. Do you think there's any coming back for the Republican Party from this, or is it just the Trump Republican Party for the future? Part of my point about the party still being kind of Reaganite and applying, as David put it, the old rules of politics to everybody else is that... Trumpism, I don't think actually survives Donald Trump nearly as strong, to be sure, and maybe at all. I mean, like there's some people who are so bought into their nonsense and the way the internet and other things help them monetize it that there'll be a half-life for a lot of the, those people. But, you know, we saw in 2018, Steve Bannon tried to put around all these Trump mini-me's in the midterms and he got trounced. Trump imitators don't do well. Even, even Vivek Ramaswamy is reviled by a large number of people who love Donald Trump. Yeah. And so if Trump were, heaven forbid, you know, to smell burnt hair on the golf course tomorrow and keel over from an aneurysm, I think nature would heal faster than a lot of people think. And I think that there are a lot of people on the left looking at the Donald Trump that they see fairly accurately, and they think, gosh, the party itself or the rank and file are actually these, you know, brown shirts. And I just don't think that that actually explains, that's not how they conceive of themselves. And calling them that is not necessarily going to move them off of their positions. I agree with David's characterization of, of my views generally. I'll be a little bit of a devil's advocate here and point out that if you take this stuff seriously, right, if you believe, which I do, I mean, I, I, I legitimately do, not because I think Trump in his heart of hearts wants to be a dictator, it's just that he listens to the people who flatter him the most, and the people who flatter him the most want him to be a dictator, you know, which is a subtle distinction, but it's a real one. And he's lazy. Let's put it this way. Mussolini and Hitler had a strong work ethic. I don't think that Donald Trump does. And I think he's got a sort of a lizard brain id that can only see his time horizon is the next hour or two hours more than anything else when it doesn't have to do with defending his narcissism. All that said, if... You actually believe, in your heart of hearts, the full Kagan thesis, right, or the full Atlantic theses, the idea that the sole responsibility for fixing the problem lies within the Republican Party, I think is really, really short-sighted and myopic. Insofar as, you know, look, we saw in 2022, 
the Democratic Party signal boosted and helped an enormous number of horrible MAGA candidates because they thought they were going to be easier to beat. Now, I get meddling in other people's primaries and hardball politics under normal circumstances. But if you are sincere when you say these people are fascists who pose an existential threat to the United States of America, in terms of minimizing your downside risks, you shouldn't be boosting the worst dregs of the MAGA movement for short-term political gain. We have in this country a massive collective action problem. Joe Biden is not the candidate to beat Donald Trump. He's very weak for beating Donald Trump. And the way he has positioned himself as president is very good for Donald Trump. If you actually wanted to peel off the gettable Republican voters, you would have a different democratic politics right now, but you don't. This is an American problem. Yes, it's manifest and it's asymmetrical. It's manifests itself mostly in the Republican party for obvious reasons, and it's asymmetrical because the Republicans were the idiots who did this. But to fix the problem, you can't just have this, you know, la-di-da attitude that if I shout fascist and dictator louder, that will solve it because I don't think it will. I believe that a huge part of our problems in this country is the weakness of our institutions, starting with the political parties. Serious Democratic Party would never have allowed Bernie Sanders to run in 2016 because he wasn't a Democrat and he was a pain in the ass to Democrats for 40 years. Serious Republican Party that took itself seriously, took its brand seriously, took its principles seriously, took democracy seriously, wouldn't have allowed Donald Trump to run. But we are the only Democratic industrialized nation in the world whose parties have fully given up the ability to pick their own candidates. And when you do that, you get candidates who go over the heads of elites to the mob, like Mark Antony swaying the bloody toga. And when you can do that in this sort of society where media outlets do not have the credibility or the institutional power they once had, we learned that at National Review with the against Trump issue, you get called an elitist for having any problem with what populist masses on the left or the right want. And so if you're going to fix this problem, one of the things you need to do is just, first of all, Back to the hilt, the court, the legitimacy of courts to handle Trump. I'm totally with David on let justice prevail, even if the heavens might fall. But also, look, I think one of the reasons we're in this mess, it's, it's not the primary reason, but it's a significant one, is that Alvin Bragg should never have brought that indictment. And he certainly should never have brought it first. Because that was the thing that started the inoculation process, because that was the weakest one. It was clearly politically driven. They're all happy to have it go away now because he gets the credit that he wanted for having brought it. And they should have narrowed the case against Trump to the best, most powerful case possible. But instead, by starting that, it was sort of first taste is free to this partisan denial that they're now in and they think all of these cases are partisan and illegitimate. There are lots of people who've behaved irresponsibly because there's this attitude of we'll do fan service to our side and the worse the other side looks, the better it is for our side. And you need grownups on both sides of the aisle. And we're lacking that to a significant degree in this country. I hate to do this because you've raised 36 issues, including, <laughs> you know, 1968 and federalism, etc. This should be a five hour episode and it should be repeated every few weeks but I want to move on. I just want to say one quick thing, which is David and Jonas Point, do justice to the heavens will fall. There's a very pregnant question out there that if 91 indictments didn't do it, would one conviction do it? To, or, or would it just simply in the jujitsu that is Trump's unique uh, place in, in American politics somehow make him stronger? 
It's now time for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we are going to talk about how the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico could become states under the Constitution. And to do the explaining, we have the great fortune of welcoming one of America's great actresses and comedians, Cecily Strong. Cecily has, since 2012, been a cast member on SNL, where she has created a series of indelible characters, including The Girl You Wish You Hadn't Started a Conversation With at a Party and Janine Pirro that are hilarious and heartwarming at the same time. For her work on SNL, she was nominated for an Outstanding Supporting Actress Emmy in 2020. Cecily also can be seen in Ghostbusters, The Boss, and can be heard in the animated comedy series, The Awesomes. And now I give you Cecily Strong on D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. How did D.C. and Puerto Rico become states? The House of Representatives voted to make D.C. a state. That represents a step to D.C. becoming a state. But how does a territory become a state, and how might this play out for D.C. and Puerto Rico, another territory that may soon join the Union? The Constitution gives Congress the power to admit new states. It exercised its power by passing a law admitting the state just as it would any ordinary legislation. Like ordinary legislation, the law needs to get at least 51 percent in the House, survive any filibuster in the Senate, and be signed into law by the president. Historically, there have been two main routes that territories have been admitted into the Union. One method has Congress first pass what is called an Enabling Act. The Enabling Act gave preliminary approval to statehood and authorized the territory to draft a constitution and apply for statehood. Once the application was submitted, Congress voted to admit or reject the state. The other route is known as the Tennessee Plan. Under this route, the territory takes it upon itself to organize a constitution and elect a state-like government. It then holds a referendum on statehood and uses the results of that referendum to petition Congress for admission. Both D.C. and Puerto Rico have sought admission through this Tennessee plan method. Indeed, the case for making them states is compelling. Both D.C. and Puerto Rico are larger than several previously admitted states, and each have held local referenda in which the populations have chosen statehood. Many of the arguments against statehood are simply partisan concerns that the states would elect Democratic representatives, if not outright racist appeals to suppress the votes of non-white voters. Some have argued that the Constitution precludes the admission of D.C. as a state because it authorizes a federal district as the seat of government. The current admission legislation appears to avoid this concern, however, by reserving a small two-mile federal district surrounding the capital and converting the rest of the city into the 51st state called Douglas Commonwealth in honor of Frederick Douglass. One potential issue with this plan is that the 23rd Amendment currently gives three electoral votes for president to the federal district. Should the rest of D.C. be admitted as a state, the Douglas Commonwealth would be entitled to three electoral votes. That would leave the residents of the federal district, essentially the president and his family, in sole control of the other three electoral votes. The admitting legislation calls for the repeal of the 23rd Amendment, but unless that happens, that could make for some awkward electoral math. For Talking Feds, I'm Cecily Strong. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. 
Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white Burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white Burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More, where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I want to move on to the, the spineless crowd you've identified and talk a little bit about the Republicans in Congress. Let's give a couple minutes on his way out the door to Kevin McCarthy, capping a bruising and in many ways humiliating year. He comes to Washington from California, 2007. He's sort of a Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor kind of different brand. You could say, I wouldn't put him in it, but you could say more intellectual conservatives, revamp the old style party. What happened? Look, I mean, after we saw the absolute clown show around the speaker fight, it's a super fair question to ask, to quote the legendary movie Office Space, to turn to the Republicans and say, what is it you say you do here? <laughs> and so what is it they're doing here? And there's a couple of things that are in play here. One is the Republican Party no longer has a coherent ideology at all. Not at all. Okay, so it's very much driven by its sort of infotainment pop culture wing. It goes where the wind blows. I mean, Two and a half years ago, critical race theory was going to destroy the United States of America in moments. 18 months ago, it was LGBT books and school libraries. I mean, it's just sort of like panic after panic after panic. And so you don't know what, what's actually going on here. And, you know, look with McCarthy. Uh, there was a point in time in the GOP, and a lot of folks who are sort of dissenting GOPers can tell you this, like Joan and I's mutual friend, Ramesh, Ross Douthat who were trying before Trump to move the GOP in a more sort of working class direction. And a lot of people piled on top of them because GOP doctrine at that time was this very, you know, you are a rhino in 2014 unless you were very, very Reaganite, okay? And that was the internal discipline. Well, now the internal discipline has changed. The definition of a rhino isn't deviating from this particular ideology. The definition of a rhino is not paying fealty to Donald Trump and the world of yeah, MAGA. Whatever Trump says, right. Right. So Kevin McCarthy, being a Reaganite, 
early in his career is just Kevin McCarthy following the crowd. Kevin McCarthy being all about MAGA in the Trump term and afterwards is Kevin McCarthy following the crowd. What we learned about Kevin McCarthy is that he follows the crowd. <laughs> That's what we learned about him. His weakness uh, definitely will be on his his epitaph, at least his political epitaph, David. I, I couldn't agree more. But I, the way I look at it is that McCarthy is the third straight Republican speaker to be forced out by his own radicalized conference. And so it's not a one-off. I mean, he's earned his place in history of American speakers because he will be so far, he's the only speaker in American history to be actually forced out of office by his uh, own conference. But in reality, actually, he's the third because John Boehner quit in disgust when facing ouster using the same maneuver that ultimately claimed Kevin McCarthy. Boehner said, screw this. And, you know, I'm not going to let these. He called them legislative terrorists and political terrorists in the House Freedom Caucus do that. So I'm out of here. Then Paul Ryan turned to by everyone as the savior, the sort of very ideological kind of hard right figure, but the demeanor of an old style establishmentarian, perfect fit at the country club, except with perhaps some of his views. He comes in and he quickly discovers that they're going to come after him. And he, he can't live with the compromises that he makes, by the way, and that are necessary with Donald Trump sitting in the White House. And so he walks away from this very promising political career. You know, he's a wonderkin who's on the vice presidential ticket at a young age. He's the consensus candidate for speaker. And then a couple of years later, he's out. McCarthy really is the sort of, I would call him the kind of slim pickings, the leftovers there. Remember that he was supposed to be the heir apparent to Ryan and he couldn't get the job then. They didn't want him. And so he's always much weaker politically, not known as any kind of a, a thinker or a you know someone setting up a Republican agenda. But as David said, he's a reactor and a follower at a time when the country needed leaders. He complained about Donald Trump because that's where all of his caucus was at during the 2016 primary campaigns. And then he did what they did. And he not only endorsed Donald Trump, but became a slavish follower of him. And what is he going to be remembered for other than being the first in American history to be dumped as speaker, he's going to be remembered because Donald Trump called him Mike Heaven and owned him. And he was such a suck up that he had his staff pick through the Starbucks candies to make sure that only the nice red ones that Donald Trump loved were given to him to keep in the glass jar in his special little TV watching office. And I, you know, to me, I mean, that's the debasement of American politics, the revolution, baby, it eats its own. I'm not going to disagree with any of that. I have two counter narrative points to make one big picture, one very granular. So the big picture one is when I was talking about the weakness of institutions, the weakest institution is the Congress of the United States. And it's made all the weak, weaker by the fecklessness and weakness of the political parties. And a lot of Kevin McCarthy's problems stem from the fact that he just didn't have a very large caucus. And so even though 96% of the caucus didn't want to get rid of him, because of his climbing the greasy pole desire for power, he agreed to really dumb provisions that empowered people like Matt Gates. And so one of the lines that I actually agree with DeSantis on is this culture of losing thing. There are an enormous number of people in the Republican Party, not a majority, but a significant number of them, certainly a significant number when you only have a two-seat majority, who win by losing. If you make political progress, Kevin McCarthy had a 
had a win with his debt ceiling deal. And immediately a big chunk of the sort of the purest House Freedom Caucus types, not all of them, said we were stabbed in the back, we were betrayed. Because the problem with winning, first of all, it defangs your apocalyptic rhetoric about how the Biden crime regime or the deep state is uh, destroying America and it's impossible to deal with and there's no reason to work with Democrats because they're the, they're the vermin, right? If you actually get a deal that makes some has some wins in it, that makes it seem like, oh my gosh, you can actually make progress. And that's not the rhetoric that they want. Man, if that's granular, what's your bigger point going to be? No, no, no. This is my big picture part, right? You know, so like the big picture point is is that they're incentivized. But if you lose, you get to say, I died on the hill. You get to say, I stayed pure and I refused to collaborate with the enemy. And that incentive, which I think has always existed with a few people in each party, right? Because I mean, you have it among the diehard sort of squad types too sometimes who make the perfect the enemy of the good. But in a caucus where you have no margin forever, it empowers them to a degree, particularly when it is exactly what the conservative entertainment complex on cable and the internet wants to hear. And so it becomes even more valuable for fundraising and all the rest. And it's fueled by small donors and yada, yada, yada. It's a big picture thing. Can I have a quick uh, follow up on that for you and everyone, which is now that we're down to maybe two, does that further empower the MAGA right or does it weaken them? I'll just make the small point very quickly, and then I'll answer that very quickly. The small point is, I think it's important to remember that they got rid of Kevin McCarthy because they didn't like, a lot of people didn't like Kevin McCarthy. He lied to an enormous number of people to get the job. He couldn't follow through on his promises. And all of the idiotic stuff that Gates said was the reason for getting rid of Kevin McCarthy, Johnson has to do now too, right? It's not like they're doing regular order now. They have to do continuing resolutions because that's what you get when you have a tiny majority is you have no choice but to do it that way. That said, I think there's going to be a little bit of a pause for now because like when even Matt Gates was talking about don't get rid of George Santos because we have such a tiny majority, these guys don't actually want to be the one to put them in the minority before the 2024 elections. And so I think people will slow their roll a little bit, but you're still going to have bandersnatches and jackasses like Steve Bannon saying any compromise, any pragmatism is a sign that you're a rhino, cuck, squish, deep state agent. And that's going to create real problems, which is why we're seeing the halfway decent people like McHenry and others saying, I'm out of here. God bless you for using bandersnatch. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? No, Jonah said it well. Okay. Then we can move on to another kind of unusual topic, but I'm really eager to get everyone's views here in particular on this. We had a remarkable week in, in higher education as the schism between sort of elite university culture and the rest of the country was on vivid display. So three university presidents testified before the House Education Workforce Committee. Their performances were widely panned. The crystalline moment was when none of the three was able to answer the aggressive questioning from Elise Stefanik of the school policy violated by calls for the genocide of Jews. And just today, we tape on Friday, a second apology from the Harvard president, you know, and said she'd flubbed the interview, got caught up in the volley of questions. Let me start here. Look, the presidents obviously knew the stakes going in. They were prepared intensively by intelligent people. How do you explain their tone-deaf performance? How were they they so tin-eared when they first sat down there this week? I watched that 
clip, this is this questioning that you're talking about from Elise Devonick. It comes at the end of this hearing. And as you said, it's an aggressive question, but actually it's not the hardest of the questions, interestingly. And what really got me, I watched this a couple different times because I almost couldn't believe that it's like one of those like cartoon movies in a way, right? Like one after the other, all three of them head right into the same meat grinder. And actually that makes Claudine Gay of Harvard even more extraordinary for having watched how her previous two <laughs> colleagues screw up and then she does the same thing. And so I do think it's an important moment. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about it, even though it's a little bit outside of our, you know, normal conversation about politics and law. And the reason is, is that I think this is a really important moment in our politics. And, and maybe it's a moment when some people can snap out of the toxic partisanship, the toxic lines that we have and sort of say, like, here's Larry Tribe posting on X saying, hey, I don't usually agree with Elise Stefanik, but count me in. She's right here. And Claudine Gay, the president of my own university, Harvard, screwed up. And I certainly agreed that she screwed up. But more importantly, I think this is a moment when, and every generation may have them, when, when liberals realize that it's not a synonym with leftism. And liberals and leftists are not the same thing. And this kind of horrifying intolerance meeting and colliding with the overly cautious bureaucratization of our institutions. This is why many people, Jonah, I think on left and right, correctly feel that our institutions are failing us and have failed. I looked at that and I just thought, you know, my son is in college and he is at Stanford whose president wasn't there, but certainly they've had plenty of screw ups themselves. Look, you know, my son had, there were swastikas found in his dorm. And my point is, these institutions are failing our students. They're failing the country, actually, by the way, at a moment when our politics is so screwed up for all the reasons we've already been talking about in this hour. Actually, like during McCarthyism, this is a moment for university presidents to speak out. And I think there's a way to condemn calling for genocide of any group. Jews or any other group in our society without getting caught up in like free speech wars and you're criminalizing speech. How come Claudine Gay or any of the others couldn't say, this is a horrifying question. And to be clear, I personally and the Harvard community condemns anyone calling for genocide and it's absolutely unacceptable. And we'll talk about any individual violations of our disciplinary code, but that's not the bigger point here is you know, this is terrible. How come none of them were capable of that basic instinct of humanity there? Because we all know the answer, which is that you're not allowed to call for the genocide of any group in America, except apparently there now appears to be somewhat of an exemption for calling for the genocide of Jews. And that is horrifying. And it should be horrifying to all Americans of good faith. And it has nothing to do with what you think of Benjamin Netanyahu and his tactics in this awful war. I wrote a piece about this that has kind of gone a little viral. And I, I agree with everything that Susan said. The only two things I wanted to add are that, one, there are good answers in response to the question. She could have rejected the premise. You know, she could have said, I don't think that the river to the sea necessarily means calling for Jewish genocide. She accepted, all three of them accepted the premise and gave bad answers that they gave. 
Moreover, it's not an abstract thing calling for genocide. This is in the wake of these kids feeling persecuted because of real actions by people, in the wake of a genocidal attack by a genocidal group on real human beings where 1,200 people were slaughtered, many of them in their beds. It's fine to have an academic conversation about tolerance of free speeches, but in the context of when these calls were being made, to accept the premise, not push back on it at all, and then say, well, it really kind of depends on the context when you're calling for the genocide of Jews in the wake of a genocidal attack on Jews was just so terrible. The only other thing I would add, and then I'll hand it to David, is that I think that it's not just that they had bad lawyerly answers. It was the damn smirking. Wow. It was the yeah. smugness that they dealt with. I think she was nervous maybe, but it's terrible. I, yeah. I get it, but there was a lot of smirking, particularly from the president of MIT. And I get, I totally get having contempt for Elise Stefanik and thinking you're too good to be here and how dare you put me on the spot like this. But if you're going to have that attitude, you got to bring the goods and push back on the question in a smart way. Mm -hmm. Instead, she acted like Elise Stefanik was some dope from, you know, some refrigeration repair school. And she was going to explain to her why she was asking a dumb question. And the sort of body language of this thing was so disastrous. And I think it comes from the bubble that these people live on on these campuses where they think this oppressor oppressed ideology stuff is a very serious argument that deserves respect. And the people who have problems with it are Philistines and lunkheads, and they're not. And I, that's why I think their days are numbered as presidents of these schools, perhaps. 100%. Oh, Harry. Bring it. <laughs> Don't hold back. So I've spent 30 years of my life litigating free speech issues on college campus. I spent like 20 plus years actually litigating as attorney. I'm the former president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. So I, I bring a lot of context to this, to use the word that they liked, context. Yeah. And here's two things. One, believe it or not, in some ways, they were actually right. Yes. I'll, okay. Yes. In uh, Advisory Opinions, a podcast I do with uh, Sarah Isker, I talked about two buckets, the accuracy bucket and the hypocrisy bucket. So in the accuracy bucket, it is actually the case that context matters even when you're talking about calls for genocide. So if you're going to apply First Amendment principles, I know these are private universities, but they were sort of reflecting back a First Amendment argument. If you're going to apply First Amendment principles, the First Amendment protects even calls for violence. And this has been articulated by the Supreme Court many times, many times. Now, it doesn't protect true threats. It doesn't protect incitement to violence. It doesn't protect harassment. But the First Amendment protects even calls for violence in certain contexts. At the same time, the school is bound by federal law to defend and protect students from harassment on the basis of race. The Department of Education under both Trump and Biden has been very clear that includes anti-Semitism. There's an actual Title VI investigation right now being launched against Harvard for violating Title VI. So here's what the university presidents could have done is walk in and say, calls for genocide are repugnant, full stop. Whether or not they are punishable depends upon context. That's a true statement. That's the accuracy bucket, but let's move to the hypocrisy bucket. What was so galling, Harry, about watching these three presidents make this law lawyerly free speech argument, their schools are not bastions of free speech. Harvard, in fact, in the FIRE rankings, is the last ranked university in America on free speech. Penn and MIT are not far behind and so this idea that they're going to come in 
when you have this wave of anti-Semitism and wax eloquent, or not, they weren't actually that eloquent, about free speech, really gives the impression, especially when you have this whole infrastructure of speech codes, bias incident response teams, safe spaces, microaggressions, that you know who can endure free speech? Jewish students. You know who needs to be protected against free speech? Well, basically everybody else besides Jewish students. And that's utterly intolerable, unacceptable stuff. So the response to this, in my view, should be really pretty comprehensive. In other words, what has been exposed here is that, and Susan, your statement about difference between leftists and liberals is so important. It is so important for people to understand. Everything left of center is not one big monolith, okay? And what has happened at a lot of these universities, the monoculture has been so insular for so long, they've become extraordinarily extreme and often don't even realize how extreme they are. And so bursting that bubble is a vital national importance. And I think that means a few things. I love what Steven Pinker wrote after his own president, you know, clear and coherent free speech policies, institutional neutrality. We don't need to know what Harvard thinks about every issue under the sun. Greater viewpoint diversity. That doesn't mean bring in flat earthers or fascists, but just break up the monoculture for crying out loud. Don't tolerate heckler's vetoes. In other words, tearing down of posters, shouting down speakers. All of these things are really important steps that need to be taken that say, wait, this is a place that is teaching not just the subjects of the institution that it teaches, but to quote the Supreme Court of the United States in dealing with a free speech issue in education, one of the purposes of education is to prepare students to be active participants in the pluralistic, often contentious society in which they live. And so that means you don't sit there and constantly put your thumb on the scales, coddling one group of students, throwing another group of students to the wolves, clear consistent free speech, clear, consistent protection from harassment. This shouldn't be a difficult thing to accomplish. 100%. And I just want to add a few things first. You are right, of course, David, and that's how it would be in the public sphere. But there's the hypocrisy bucket, there's the accuracy bucket, and then there's the real world, are you crazy bucket where, you know, when you're thinking about, well, does that mean we say calling for genocide is okay? You say, no, 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 we have, we must rethink this and before the hearing. It's true, that would be a principle. University of Chicago, where my son goes, has been very good about this, but they haven't gotten into the business of, you know, she, the Ukraine flag flew. Why not Israel? Well, that was my predecessor's decision. Ugh! And other obvious violations of content neutrality, that's what made them look really uh, terrible, it seemed to me. And I think all three of you have given the implicit explanation that it's just so far upriver where the universities are that they thought in trying to frame the right response to the country, they had to give a lot of ground for this very strong culture within. The, they didn't want to sell that out too much, and they and they took a stance that was disastrous. So, you know, maybe there's a possible silver lining in the erosion of the over-the-top, you know, wokeism in universities. Another five-hour topic that nevertheless, as moderator, I must arrest here. We're down to a, a minute or two for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, 
um, where we take a question from a listener and we all have to answer in five words or fewer. And today's slightly snarky question, what valedictory message do you have for Kevin McCarthy? All right, I'm going to go with a movie quote. Powers Booth playing Curly Bill Brocious in the movie Tombstone. (laughs) Well, bye. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of Sia, but um, how about a song? I'm thinking of Evita. Don't cry for Kevin. (laughs) America. Don't cry for Kevin, America. Don't cry for Kevin, America. I guess I'll go with the song title, or at least the lyric uh, from The Doors. This is the end. (laughs) And we have the the silent explosions over uh, (laughs) Vietnam. Uh, I'm going biblical in honor of his successor as Speaker Mike Johnson. As you sow, you reap. And we are out of time. Thank you so much, Susan, David, and Jonah. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content, as well as daily explanations by me of important developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message for a chance to be featured on the show or to give suggestions for our sidebar feature. That's 727-279-5339. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McCardle, our research producer is Zeke Reed, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. And production assistance by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our endless gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>